Hola, pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. How is everybody doing today? Hello, this is Tom. Doing well. How is everyone? It's Deacon Dennis here. Glad to see you guys. So today we're here to talk to Kevin Turf, who has an amazing story. And if you have paid any attention in the last 20 years to anything, you've probably heard of Mr. Turf. And maybe you've heard of his story. And if you're somebody who likes theater, Broadway, musicals, you will know about the play Come From Away, which won a Tony Award at least, maybe some Tony Awards, and had a lot of nominations. And it was a fantastic play. Because Mr. Turf's story is all about what happened to him and a lot of other people on 9-11. But it didn't happen here in the United States. It happened far away. And we're going to ask him all about that today. So welcome to our podcast, Kevin Turf. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And as a longtime Paulist supporter, I'm especially happy to be here. Well, we're really happy to have you. This is an amazing story. And I think what we'll do is just probably try to tell it the way it happened and let you tell it, actually. There is a book, and that's the basis for my knowledge. And the book is Channel of Peace, written by Kevin Turf, Stranded in Gander on 9-11. The book, I think, was published in 2018 and tells this amazing story of people doing the right thing and coming together. It's not a story about the church. It's a story about people who know how to come together and provide human comfort to each one of us in a very, very stressful time. So, Mr. Turf, where were you right before 9-11? In 2001, I'd started a company in Austin, Texas, and I'd been in Austin. I was a graduate at the University of Texas, and I became a member of the UT Catholic Center run by the Paulist Fathers. And uh, soon after graduating, became one of those old people who just wouldn't go away. And I became a member of the resident community there. And in 1997, I started a company in Austin. And it was very stressful. And so for four years, I really worked seven days a week and didn't take much of a vacation. So my first two-week vacation was to go to Europe with my partner. His name is Kevin as well. And so went to southern France and visited my friend in Amsterdam. And then on the morning of September 11th, we boarded a plane to fly to New York City, then to hypothetically (laughs) connect to go to Austin, Texas. So here we are, we're flying over the ocean at 30,000 feet. And I know they've got monitors back in the day, the GPS monitor was up on the screen, the ceiling. And so you could see all the time where you were. And I knew we were at least a couple hours away from New York City. Well, then the terror attacks began at the World Trade Center with planes hitting the Trade Center and ultimately the Pentagon and going down in Pennsylvania. And so shortly thereafter, U.S. airspace was closed. Of course, I didn't know this as a passenger. All I know is all of a sudden we're descending over the ocean which is not a thing that you want to do. Right, right. Did you get any warning from the pilot that something bad was happening? Not until we looked like we were flying on that map. I looked up, it looked like all of a sudden we were flying to the North Pole. Right. And so we had done a sharp bank to the north, and then finally after we were sort of 
cruising along another 10 minutes. We were on an Air France flight and the pilot came on and spoke first in French, but he used the word terrorism in English. And I asked, did he just say terrorism? And nobody could really understand him. And so then he came on in, in broken English and said, due to a terrorist attack in the United States, we'll be landing in Gander. And that was all he said. And we didn't know what the attack was. And we certainly didn't know where Gander was. We didn't know what if it was Iceland, Canada. Had no idea. Never heard of it before. Before I knew your story, I had never heard of Gander either. And I'm actually annoyed because, well, I don't want to jump ahead, but I'm annoyed at myself because I didn't know the play. We go to New York from time to time, my wife and I, and we didn't know the play that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But anyway, so you go to Gander and what happens? Well, the good thing is, is there's a tiny town there that has a giant runway. The runway was built by U.S. and British military during World War II. It was a refueling stop for every aircraft flying across the Atlantic Ocean. So lucky for us, there is every plane that is over the Atlantic that doesn't have enough fuel to turn and go around and go back to Europe is directed to land in Canada. And so... We were the six of what would ultimately be 38 jumbo jets that landed at Gander International. Well, Gander is now a tiny town because planes don't have to stop there to refuel anymore. And so a town of 9,000 people all of a sudden has 38 planes and about 7,000 people on the ground. So it was only after we landed and sat and waited and the pilot told us, well, maybe we'll we're not sure what's going on, but we'll try to get over to the mainland. Well, because we we're in Newfoundland and Labrador is the province of Canada. And so it's an island of the Atlantic Ocean. And so he said, we'll try to get to the mainland, maybe go to Montreal and wait it out there, see what happens. So hours and hours go by. And so finally, the pilot did say there was a terrorist attack. Planes hit the World Trade Center. The Trade Center has collapsed. The Pentagon has been hit. And other planes also crashed in Pennsylvania. Had you found out anything while you were sitting on the plane? First of all, I think it's important uh, for the audience to know how long you actually sat on the tarmac. For all of us who are impatient, when we're waiting at the gate in Newark to try to get our, off to our plane, this dwarfs all those stories. So how long were you on the plane? 15 grueling hours. So yeah, the next time you want to complain about your half an hour delay, give me a buzz. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, but with, when the pilot came on and said that about terrorist attacks in New York and the buildings being hit, was that the absolute first time you heard about it? Yes. Okay. And it was a state of shock and disbelief by almost everyone. Because back in the day, there were no, I had a cell phone, but I, no one had international coverage. Right. Certainly didn't have internet. These days you could pull up Twitter and watch something like that live. And so... We sat and waited and waited, and ultimately it was clear that we were probably going to stay there, maybe on the plane overnight. And some planes did. There was one plane that they, their passengers stayed 28 hours on the plane, and they slept on the plane overnight. And that became a song, and the Broadway musical Come From Way. But ultimately, this is where Christ kicks in. This is a... A small town that has doubled in population. You have to ask yourself, if your place where you lived, if you doubled in population, would you let people in your home to take a shower? 
because that's what they did in Gander. Well, not, not only that, which I want you to tell, talk to us a little bit about, but not only that, but when this happened, and you talk about this in the book, you even though we know what happened factually at that moment, we did not know what was going on. We did not know how bad this is. We did not know what, how widespread it might be. And you're not at home. And as scary as it was for us and, and as terrible as it was for so many people, you're not at home. You're, you're stranded in a place that you, and I don't mean to overstate it. I don't know if you know existed before you got there. I did not. Yeah. Now, these, these people had the same, these people from Ganders, I think, I think you tell us had the same fears about what was going on. Did they embrace you or did, were they nervous? How were they? Well, that was a little bit of both. I mean, they, they knew there could potentially be other terrorists on some of the planes they had parked on their runway. Right. And so in my book, I went, and I interviewed the mayor, Claude Elliott, and I said, why did you let us off? The first act of compassion was when they said, we're going to open our border and our town and our schools and our churches and our homes. And let's, we're going to take care of you. I said, why did you take that risk? And he said, we weren't going to let you rock on those planes. Wow. Yeah. It was finally hours later. And they said, we're, you're, we're going to be sleeping at a shelter here. We don't know. That's all we know. Take the pillows and blankets that are in the overhead compartment with you, and you will not be able to take your luggage. And that was the only information. And by this time, it's late at night. It's dark. I still have not seen any of the video. Still, it's everything that's happened is a mystery. And there's no people trying to call back to the U.S. to get through. No one can get through. And so... Then I look out. I'm sitting right on the the window seat and looking out over the wing. And all day long, they had an armed guard at the foot of every plane, so they were concerned about security. These are not naive people, right? But they all of a sudden, I see a long line of headlights coming onto the runway, and it turns out they're school buses. So the school buses are going to take us from off the plane to these shelters. Why do they need school buses? Well, because there's only 15 taxis in this town and they're not going to get 7,000 people shuttled around to their shelters. And the other amazing thing is that the school bus drivers in the town happen to be on strike. Well, they took a vote and they said, our problems are with our employer, not with the people on those planes. We're going to help them. So they came off strike and they worked around the clock driving people back to, to and from the airport for five days. Where, um, did you, where did you get, where did they house you? We were housed at the community college or college of the North Atlantic in Gander, which as I call it the five-star refugee shelter because they had working television. So the first time we're able to see what happened, happened, they'd set up TVs, one in English, one in French in the cafeteria. And people were just sh- shell shocked like everybody. And so we got to see that they had, when we walked in, it was like we walked into a party. There was food galore. Everyone in that town was cooking and making food for the people who were on the planes. They canceled school at that college for the rest of the week. And they had all the staff came back and became volunteers. And they shoved all the desks to the side of the room. And those became the sleeping rooms. And so all of a sudden, the people that I had been sitting with on the airplane, I'm now 
have to bed down and sleep next to on the tile floor of a community college. Yeah, there's a little, there's a couple of little vignettes in, in here. What, the first night that you lay down on an air mattress, I, what happened that, I hear Tom laughing. I mean, I, it's funny to us now. I'm sure it was yeah, not no, funny to well, you. Well, I mean, the first part of it, it was so touching because I had a credit card. There are three hotels in that town. And so they only allowed the hotels for the flight crew. So I, it was the first time I had to rely on the kindness of a stranger to give me a pillow to lay my head. And so about midnight on September 11th, I see this young man, a teenager, walk into the school and his mom probably said, hey, go donate these pillows and hey, why don't you bring that inflatable air mattress down there? So I see the air mattress that I'd rather sleep on that than on the cold tile floor. So I get this air mattress and blow it up, takes a long time, and then lie down on the on that mattress and all of a sudden you hear a hiss. <laughs> there is a leak and so that story also makes it into the play that was our air, the air mattress deflated mm. so soon we were sleeping with a, a sheet the donated sheet and some pillows on the tile floor of the college classroom and you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago that there were only a few taxis in the town but didn't there come a point in time when you learned that the people of Gandersall decided that they, if, if they passed you on the street, they would become a taxi service? That's right. That was a funny story. I like to tell people that the people of Gander invented Uber before Uber <laughs> happened. The only challenge was they didn't charge people for it. Yeah, we were walking. We heard there was a Walmart there, so we couldn't, we didn't have our luggage. And so after two days or 36 hours, we're in clothes that stink. And so we want fresh underwear and socks and T-shirt. Again, don't know how long we're going to be there. Right. And so we hear there's a Walmart. And so we, how far, it's like two miles away. So we just said, well, let's just walk. It was a beautiful day that day. We're walking on the side of the street. And all of a sudden, a car pulls over. They roll down the window, stick out their head. Hey, what are you doing? So we thought we were in trouble. You know, like, <laughs> get off the road. As you would. If this, were New, if this were New Jersey, I'd probably run, run away. <laughs> or Texas. Yeah, exactly. And so we'd wave them off. No, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. But then they drove off. And then a second car comes and offers the same thing. And then a third car comes and offers us a ride. And so the other Kevin says, I think we should take this or we're never going to get there. Mm -hmm. And so we met this nice couple, the married couple, and they chatted with us and drove us to the Walmart and so I offered to give them some money. They said, no, no, you would do the same. And I thought, the heck I would. You know, we don't, my mother taught me never get into a car with strangers. And I most certainly would not pick up hitchhikers. <laughs> so anyway, then we went into the Walmart, which was another funny scene where it's like there's a almost a, a, a fist fight by elderly men in the underwear aisle. And because they're, they're only down, all the tidy whities were taken, they're only down, only down to the bikini briefs. People were staring, not knowing what to do. But anyway, so yeah, they, they but and again, when I went back for my book, I'm like, how did that happen? Where people just started pulling over and offering rides all over town in every direction. And it wasn't just us. It was happening to people on our flights who told me they had similar stories and so I asked, did the mayor go on television and encourage people to go give rides to these people? No, they just did it. 
Right. So it's just another wonderful act of compassion. Well, Phil, now they, they gave you a place to stay. People, individuals came in volunteering blankets and sheets and, and pillows. And they fed you, right? Oh, my goodness. We would have been happy with Fritos and hot dogs. But again, at this community college, they happened to have a cooking school. They trained cooks to go work on merchant marine vessels. And so on the second night, they had a sit-down dinner with a stuffed chicken breast that tasted better than anything I had in our European vacation. Wow. Did you get to meet and know a lot of, or did you make friends? We didn't make, make a lot of friends. It was, we made friends with a lot of our fellow passengers who we, we, a lot of the time we had, we weren't sure when we were going to get the call to go back to the airport. So we kind of hovered around the school and, but we did make friends and I'm still friends to this day with some of the fellow passengers. In fact, two of them, Maureen and Sue and I, we went back to Gander just this year for when they performed the musical for the town in the hockey rink. Was that just this year that happened? Well, it happened in 2016, but they brought it back again to do it three more times. Oh, okay, because I, I think I watched a YouTube video about, it must have been 2016, but it was very, very emotional. It was, and so I'm blessed that I could be there and witness. I've never seen in, in that particular show that the town started the standing ovation five minutes before it was even over. Right, right, and it, it, you could see it, and it's just really touching. I wanted to kind of try to tell the story in a linear fashion, if you will, but I think we should mention the Come From Away play because we've mentioned it, I've mentioned it ahead of time, and now we've talked about it. Let's jump to that, and we'll get you home in a minute. How, <laughs> how, how did that happen? So I went back to Texas after we, ultimately it was about seven days. It should have been 10 hours. It took seven days to get home. And I kept in my head, I kept going back to this, you know, we tried to give them money to pay for, like at our, our shelter, we ran up a $12,000 phone bill because they just said, dial away. You need to reach your family. And they refused to take money. And I thought, my gosh, we would, in Texas, we would find a way to profit off of these people. <laughs> yeah. And so, but they just said, you would do the same. They're talking about the golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated. Right. Which I've now learned is part of every religion in the world. And I've been on a mission to keep spreading that word that, that we are all the same. And here we were, people from so many, 90 different countries, people from every religious background, including Muslim Arabs who were very nervous about what had happened that day. Sure. So anyway, I go back to Texas and, I, and my company and I thought, I don't, would we do the same? I don't think we would. And it really bothered me. So on the first anniversary of 9-11, I started an effort with my staff. I closed the doors in my advertising agency and I handed out $100 bills to the staff. And I said, go out and do good deeds for strangers. Remember the lives that we lost. We said we would never forget them. So tell people, remind them it's anniversary of 9-11 and then tell the story of what happened on the better side of humanity to their boss. And so that was an emotional event every year and people loved it and i have amazing stories in the book of the best actions that people took over right. 15 years but anyway so on the 10th anniversary i, I decided it's time that i really should go back and i want and i knew there was going to be a reunion of passengers and so i went back to gander went back to the campus 
And there was a press conference, a lot of interviews, and I got approached by a husband and wife team. And they said, hey, we got a grant to write a musical about what happened here on 9-11. And I thought, how cute is that? Only the Canadians would write a musical about 9-11. Right. But I said, of course, I love musicals. And I had a brand new video, digital video camera. I had been recording images from on the plane to in the shelter, other places. So I sent them all that footage, did a couple of follow-up interviews over several months, and then forgot about it. And then two and a half years go by, they give me a call. Hey, we wrote a musical. It's called Come From Away. The, the term is a Newfoundland term that means you were not born on that island. You have, you're either an immigrant or a tourist or, a, in our case, a refugee, a stranded airline passenger. And so we were come from a ways is the term that they use. And so that we wrote this musical and you're in it. And I was blown away. It didn't occur to me that you have, in order to tell a story, you have to tell the story of not just the townspeople who are the heroes, but also the people who were stuck on the planes and, and the recipients of such kindness and compassion. You were Kevin T in the play, right? That's right. I'm Kevin T. There are now more than a dozen better looking dancing versions of me and come for away plays all across the world. Well, I think I've seen a couple of them and I, I would not say that they're all better looking than you. Maybe they can <laughs> sing or dance better. I'm not sure. <laughs> for sure. And they're younger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we have to stick together. But you're not as old as me, but anyway, so this play, they developed this play. They, and it's a musical. When did you first see it performed? First saw it, you know, if somebody, when they called me and told me that, they said, we're going to have our first sort of dress rehearsal at Sheridan College, which is the most famous musical theater school in Canada. It's outside Toronto. And said, so, well, if somebody calls you and says you're going to be a musical, don't you think you want to go? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they portray you. So I went. It turns out I was the only person, only one other person made the trek. But I, I sat there and I wept. There's one particular song that I think we talked about that mm -hmm. uh, just really blew me away. And then at the end of the show, I, they asked me to stand up in front of the audience and tell people who I was and tell them that this is almost exactly how it happened. It's was so authentic. Right, right. All right, so then I, my apologies for interrupting the story. You were stuck in Gander for how many days? The first time, <laughs> not, not when you yeah. went back. We were there. Four days, and well, we boarded our plane when they reopened U.S. airspace. And then, so we go, they were doing first in, first out. So we were the sixth to land. So we were like the sixth to leave. And so they had to board the school buses, head back to the airport. They gave us a ticket to New York. And then we go through hours, painful security scrutiny at the airport. And then we had to go and claim our Actually, yeah, we had to claim our luggage, which they had, people had gone through every bag of all 7,000 passengers and they removed them out to a hangar. And so you had to go find your bag among the sea of bags and claim it. And anyway, then the pilot comes to us and says, they're only allowing American carriers like American, Continental, United. Those planes were the only ones they were allowing in first. And so the pilot said, Air France called. They want their plane back. We have to take you back to Paris. 
And that is not what we wanted. We wanted to be home. We didn't know what was going to happen next. We didn't know if World War III was breaking out. And there were 15 people from our plane who said, we're not doing it. We do, we're, it's too scary. Mm-hmm. And so they yeah. took this long, convoluted three-day route, chartering a bus, had to have $1,500 on you. And, and so that's what they did. But we decided to stick with the airline. We went back to Paris, got sent to a two-star flea bag hotel that had no food. And we should have just stayed with the nice people in Gander. <laughs> well, but you wanted to get home, and this was apparently the fastest way for you to do so, correct? Right. And then so, and ultimately they said, at the airport, they said, don't even come. There's so many people backlogged for several days. They said, don't even come back to the airport for two more days. We did, and the monstrous lines. We ultimately got a flight back direct from, they sent an empty plane from Houston to Paris to pick people up and then to bring them back. But it was in Paris where there was two critical parts of the musical happened while we were in Paris. And people don't really know that in the musical, but you can learn about it in my book. One is that we're here we are in Paris. Kevin wasn't feeling well. He wanted to watch TV and the news. I was done with that. And I thought, I'm going to go into town, into downtown Paris. And so I started wandering around and I happened to notice that at Notre Dame, they were having a mass, a prayer vigil for Americans because of the attack. And so that was amazing. I didn't understand it because it was all in French, but I knew what they were doing. And it was when I came out of Notre Dame is when this song went through my head, Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. And this is a song that we had sung in a civic chorus a couple of months prior. And it was one of these things that like, uh, I just kind of noted that like, why we're here we are in war and I'm singing, Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. And then I never thought about it again until it ends up being the song in the musical. It starts this interfaith prayer that people really love. Right. right. That's it, it. That aspect of your story really blew me away because I'm I'm reading it and when you and when you talked about coming out of the, the Notre Dame and, and having that song in somehow come from nowhere into your head and into your heart. To me, that's something spiritual that might happen to any of us. But when it shows up in the musical without your telling them or without your prompting anybody that this might be one of the songs you could consider. I'm like, the Holy Spirit is talking to us. That's it. That was a God moment that I am so happy that I've been able to at least watch happen. Um, Again, because you never told anybody that. No, fact, no right? I, I, that, 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 that was a, it was like an earworm where the song <laughs> just goes through your head and, mm-hmm. and think yeah. about it. But never told a single person. In fact, I did not remember telling the writers. I, I was like a sucker punch when I first heard it. I was like, how did they know that that song was going through my head? I've never told anybody. It really did feel like the power of the Holy Spirit. The writers have since said, yes, you told us that song. I guess they asked me, was there any music? And I, but I'd never remember telling it. It had been a couple of years. Yeah. Well. And it was just, but it, it stuck, obviously. That memory stuck. And, so it, it's uh, it's an honor that 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 song is in there and, and that it's part of this interfaith prayer. And it shows the power of prayer is what was happening 
And it's beautifully performed in the play, too, by the way. Where is the play running now? Is it touring or are they, they they must have gotten slowed down by the pandemic. It it was definitely shuttered by the pandemic. And then when they restarted on Broadway, they just really never got their full capacity of people coming back. So it did close in October of 2022, but it is still on tour across North America through next year. It's currently in Madison, Wisconsin. And then there is, it's still on stage in the West End of London, and it's now in Sydney, Australia. And there is a version that just won Best Musical in Argentina, their version of the Tony Awards. And there's one in Norway and Finland. It is pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, it, it, it is. I, and that's the ironic part. And I m- mentioned a few minutes ago, we like to go to musical theater and uh, and we missed that play. We didn't go to that play. And, and then when we started talking about this and I read your book and I immediately looked to see it, as you say, it closed in October. It just it closed very recently. And I'm like, I can't believe I missed this. The good news is you can still, it is, they recorded it during pandemic and you can watch it on Apple TV plus a full concert version on Apple TV that will live there forever. So now you came back, you mentioned a few minutes ago, you came back home and you're still in your, you had a marketing business, environmental marketing, correct? Correct. While you were in Ganders, you had a full staff running your business, correct? Correct. So I'm not suggesting that they didn't need you back there, but when you came back and you started the Pay It Forward 9-11 Acts of Kindness program, how long did you stay in business there and did you ultimately move? Uh, Yeah, the the interesting thing was I wasn't sure how people would respond and if a sort of forced charity that I I was imposing on them. But they did. They loved it. And the best part was we would come to the office after in the afternoon and people would share their stories. And what did they do with the hundred dollars? And every year it was like people would have to break out boxes of Kleenex. There'd be tears of joy as people right. talked about how they bought somebody's lunch or someone they paid for someone's prescriptions that they didn't know. One team went and down to the maternity ward at the charity hospital in Austin and said, hey, we have we bought a $100 savings bond. We want to give it to a single mother who's giving birth to a child because it's not going to be a great day to be born on 9-11. Right. Really thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And, and so each year, people just loved it. And then the word kind of spread. We weren't trying to do it for publicity, but other people wanted to join in. And so we we're able to encourage others, especially in the Austin area, to join us and other law firms and the small businesses joined in. And so I continued that tradition until I left, stepped out from the company in 2016. And then for all practical purposes, our effort should have folded because I had no one to help me organize it or promote it. And, but that's when I, the musical had come along. And so I approached the producers and I said, Hey, would you help continue my tradition and promote Pay It Forward on 11 to people who come watch the show? And they said, yes. And they also continued that my tradition, they gave out their money, $100 bills to the cast, the crew, and the band of Come Our Way in every single production. So all of a sudden, my small effort in Austin, the ripple effect of Gander's 
kindness and compassion is now having a ripple effect in Sydney, Australia and London, England and all throughout Canada. So that was really incredible. And this show, it was not long after that, I decided to incorporate as a charity of 501c3. And just this past year, we surprisingly broke all of our own records, more than 22,000 acts of kindness wow. documented in more than 40, in 46 states and 16 countries. And for our wow. listeners, is there any way that our listeners and ourselves, that we can get involved in this? What, what can we do? Please do visit our website, payitforward911.org. And if you'll sign up and register with your email address, that way we'll send you reminders as we get closer to the event. And it's what's great about this is that people, it doesn't take a lot of planning that whether you're a family or we've met this year, we had Dell Computer. They encouraged all of their 150,000 employees to participate. And so they had the resources. They went to a, a low-income school in Austin and donated 500 backpacks with school supplies to kids at this school. And then they also, as part of their teaching pay it forward, they provided thank you notes for the kids to write to the teachers to thank them for teaching. So these wonderful stories keep happening. And I, I just love that. And and I, I've known and seen that when we post things on social media, what, a lot of people don't want to talk about what they've done as a good deed. Right. They, and they'll point to something the Bible says, don't do that. But I I've decided years ago that like it was worth it because the, of the ripple effect that when people hear a story, they'll say, oh, I can do that. Even as late as four o'clock on the afternoon of September 11th, someone going home from work, they'll stop and like buy gas for a stranger on, on the street. And then what, what I've also researched is that the benefits, it's like the prayer of St. Francis, for it is in giving that we receive. We receive the helper's high. It's like a runner's high. You go running, you get this feeling of euphoria and you're you just feel wonderful. And that's what happens when you do these random acts of kindness to strangers. And it's so true. And it's so in keeping with everything Christ taught us, to be there for people, to open your arms, to open our arms, and to just do what's needed to make things better as opposed to making them worse. So I do want to talk about your spiritual journey because I know it's part of your story. But right before we get there, uh, I understand. Are you involved? What are you doing now? Are you involved in refugee issues? I'm currently living in New York City. And before the pandemic, I did, because of a spiritual awakening in 2016, happened after being invited. Because of the musical, I get these surreal opportunities. They don't make any money on the show, but they take me to amazing places. Like, the got a free trip to Australia out of it. But one year, I'm the show was in Washington, D.C., and so I got a private tour of the Pentagon. I saw all the places and a tour by a woman who escaped the wreckage when the plane hit her part of the building. She survived crawling out of the fire. Her sister, who were 50 yards away, did not. So she does tours in honor of her. Her name is Kathy Dilliver, her sister who dies, Patty Mickley Dilliver. And so something happened that day and that when I got on the plane to leave, God was telling me that 
I needed to really embrace my role as a channel of peace. And after going to a Jesuit eight-day silent retreat, which I'd never done before, that's where I saw this vision you know, the word immigrant. This is about a few, right at the time when anti-immigrant rhetoric was heating up heavily in the political world. Mm-hmm. I ended up joining St. Francis Xavier in Manhattan to have an immigration accompaniment program to go out and accompany people who are seeking asylum, legal asylum but they have to stay in this corporate prison next to Newark Airport. I ended up joining that effort, and long story short, I assisted a man who was there for seven months. He had no family, no friends, no money. He had a wife and kids back in Nigeria and helped him get an attorney. The attorney went through the process and was there for his hearings, and then he was granted asylum, helped him get connected to Catholic charities, and and then ultimately over a year later, watched and helped as get his family reunited. And so I was there at JFK Airport to witness this remarkable reunion of a father and his four children who he hadn't seen in two years, and his wife. And that was the greatest volunteer effort ever. And I will say that, that the reason I did it was after hearing all this anti-immigrant rhetoric, and I thought back to my time when I was a refugee. Right. I was forced to flee. We can, our country was at war, and we were forced to go to not one, but two different countries before it could come back. And so I re- was the recipient of compassion. I thought, well, I should do like the people of Gander. You're telling us a story of a remarkable life and I. Uh... I don't mean to overly flatter you, but it's a great story, and it's inspiring to me as a deacon, and I think it's inspiring to us as well. Tom, did you have questions? I don't know if you want to crack into the spiritual journey. Yeah, well, go ahead. Part now, absolutely. Because yeah. I, having read the book, that was to me a additional inspiration coming from you, Kevin. How you had some roots in the Catholic faith, and you had becoming that channel of peace. That was your journey as you made some reconciliation with the church. I mean, it's you suffered a lot of pain. And of course, when Francis is talking about that, he's telling us to get over that uh, situation, which most of us can't do. Forgiveness is one of the biggest challenges we have. Could you go into the story about a little bit about that part of and how it sure. led to your discernment? Sure. Yeah, I was raised Catholic, my entire family Catholic. And like, as I mentioned, I was a member of the Paulist UT Catholic Center for years and years, served on the development committee. And then they had a gay men's discernment group. And so right around the time I was coming out of the closet, they had a meeting for people to realize that I was not alone and that I was indeed a child of God and that I was loved by God and that, that I had a place, that the, that the Paulists were welcoming me to serve there. And so right around 1993, unfortunately, the Vatican comes out, statement talking about the intrinsic evil of the homosexual condition. And that was enough to make to basically our group, which was, I'm still very close friends with several of the men I met back in 1993, but they all left the church because of that statement. And I decided because the Paulus had been so good to me, I was going to stay and stay involved. And I said, even if I'm the last gay Catholic with my foot in the door. So I, I, after my friends all left, it just wasn't, wasn't as much fun. Well, (laughs) 
Sure. And so I, I wasn't, there was regular mass. This was all in the, right, especially when I started my company in 1997, work became the overpowering part of what I did as an entrepreneur. And so my prayer life suffered. I wasn't praying as much as I normally would or should. And then fast forward to when I've stepped down from the company, I have this remarkable, you know, awakening of my faith and which brought me into a very deep, powerful prayer life. And then all of a sudden I became super involved at this church here in New York City, St. Francis Xavier. And I'm, all of a sudden I'm the church lady. I'm on five <laughs> committees and I sing in the choir and I've, I've never done any of these things before. And it makes me very happy. I took a very big notice too of that discernment, getting with the Jesuits for eight days and having that word immigrant pop out because that was not part of your plan at all. I didn't know anything about immigration. My company, we focused on environment and health. But yeah, I'm, I essentially, I, I saw this poster on the wall of the retreat center. It said, pay attention to your daydreams to hear the voice of God. And I liked that. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, half awake, half asleep, and all of a sudden, I see a whiteboard appear. And the letters are written in marker, no hand, just the letters appearing one at a time, I-M-M-I-G-R-A-N-T, immigrant. And then poof, goes away. And I want to scream, what in the heck was that? But it's a silent retreat. You can't talk. <laughs> I, I did talk with my spiritual director and he said, well, let's, I think God's trying to tell you something. So let's keep meditating, keep praying on this, keep diving, figure out what does that mean? And so it was seven months before I figured it out. And I happened to be coming here to New York City to go see the show. And I'd written my book and my spiritual director said, oh, when you go back to New York, drop off the book at our parish, St. Francis Xavier, 16th and 6th, and they'll sell your book. So that was the main reason I'm going there. But all of a sudden, I take a taxi to the church. The taxi door opens up, and right in my line of sight is a vinyl banner hanging on the fence of the church that reads, Immigrants and Refugees Welcome. And again, I was blown away. Like, these, uh, you don't have signs on churches anywhere in Texas. And so I go inside and have this remarkable welcoming place and the music is amazing and God was saying this is where you need to be and so a month later I picked up from Austin because I had the ability to I'd stepped down from my company I could work wherever I wanted as a consultant and so I always said I love New York but I would never want to live here <laughs> that all that changed in that one one morning and uh, that was in May 2017 and I moved in June 2017. I think the good Lord hears, here's where we make a statement like that. I would never want to go in that place. And all of a sudden you wake up and there you are saying, how did I get here? It's, mm -hmm. it's true. But again, I think your, your testimony is for everyone. God is calling us all. And he puts these little signs and markers in our lives. And I think one of the situations in our world is that we don't pay attention to the busyness and we get clouded up with that. But I think that compassion that was shown by those folks up in Gander really is a contagious thing. I think we saw that here on 9-11 or when you see these hurricanes, Katrina, where you see people driving all over. So we have the ability to do that. But unfortunately, it seems to take a tragedy. We can't get the energy 
to do something on a good day. And so I think your efforts hopefully could be commended and maybe corporations, like you say, Dell, is able to give some energy to this because I think we're at a time when we need that interaction. We need the visible sign that most people are good and we need some energy to be released. And and spirituality is, is a key part for us. But for those who are just trying to do good and haven't reconnected with church or connect, be with a spiritual family, when they see the things that you have started and contributed to, I think hopefully that becomes part of the key for their success to, to then move on and join with others and make good things happen. So I was well, uh, no. an excellent I, book and I deep that. sharing that. Because I had wrote the book, I started doing a lot of book talks and public speaking. And so I wanted to study more about this issue of compassion. And I went to the Charter for Compassion, which is a group that was founded with winner of the TED Talk Prize, Karen Armstrong, of a religious scholar, assembled people from religions across the world. And they wrote this charter saying, hey, let's reinvigorate the golden rule. And so then from there, I learned about like, what's the difference between kindness, empathy, and compassion? Because I think there's a lot of confusion there. People, the the buzzword these days is self-compassion. So people like, oh, take care of yourself. But then they forget, no, that's, you take care of yourself first and then you go help take care of others. And so I agree with you that like, even during the pandemic, we were, there was massive amounts of compassion across the world. The idea that we had to shelter in place, the idea that we had to wear masks and that it more or less, it worked. That was perhaps the greatest compassionate thing I've ever seen. But to your point, why does it take a terrorist attack, a natural disaster, or a pandemic for us to act the way that we know God wants us to act? What I like about your story so much is it's faith in action. It's, I mean, you had a spiritual awakening, but then you did something about it. It, it, made, it moved you to share this. Not so much to preach the word of God to everybody by your words, but like, but to do things like it's the opposite of what St. Francis said, preach all the time and sometimes use your words. You, (laughs) you use your actions. And I am, for one, am going to bring a pay it forward 9-11 into my parish because it gives people a chance to do something. And, And maybe we can, like Tom, I agree with you. Let's take it out of the disaster and just do it on a weekly basis. Right. In fact, what, this past year, we, we've learned because we, we like to get schools involved. We had some great Catholic schools in Nashville that did some amazing work, schools and businesses. And so getting everybody to do it on one day is sometimes hard. So this year, what we came up with was called 11 Days of Kindness, September 1st through the 11th. So it's all meant to be under the Pay It Forward banner. But it, we, that's one reason why we had such... Right, enormous growth across the world. Yeah, yeah I just like to say that on what you're just talking about with why can't we do this without a tragedy, be compassionate. And I think that part of what was illustrated by Kevin's story is that the answer to that question is, well, that's what spirituality is supposed to be for. It's like take care of yourself or you can take care of someone else. True, obvious, important, but you got to get to step two. And I think that a lot of people really don't have a spiritual life. They just don't. They're just living in a materialistic world, and they're just going, what's the next thing I got to do, and this and that. And there is no reflection. And Kevin's talking about being open to things and going on an eight-day silent retreat. 
I mean, you can't do that without God showing up. I've never heard of it anyways. I mean, people may not mm-hmm. follow through sometimes after a while. They lose the thread, whatever. But if you have a spiritual life, it's supposed to make you compassionate. Now, then there's the other group of people that would say, well, I have a spiritual life. Well, you're not doing it right if it doesn't lead you to compassion. You know, it's like, what, what, do you, what do you think this is all about? You think oh, God is some kind of egomaniac that just wants to hear how great he is all day from you and this never, you, you don't ever connect the dot and move to the, the second dot? Like, oh, that means I have to go over here and who's being left out? So I think that Kevin is a, is a great, his story is a great example of not just response to tra- tragedy, but the further response that came from his spirituality and him connecting the dots and doing it right. And then so, taking that spirituality and turning it back into action. I mean, it's a correct. synthesis. Yeah, that's the doing it right. Absolutely. It all goes I together. I think you see it right there, and he wasn't trying to do it. He's not a monk. He's not, you know, whatever. But you see the fruit of the effort if you're open to it, and God shows up, like Tom was saying, and there are signs. We all have those stories. Anybody who's doing it, has those stories. They have experience of God, which is what people are like, well, this is something my mother told me. No, 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 no. We passed that. We, right. We've seen him show up and we all have college degrees. We all took science classes. We're not a bunch of unenlightened adults from the Middle Ages here, but stuff, uh, well, Drew says he is. Speak but, for yourself. Uh, yeah, I didn't right. think Tom, okay. I went, N- do- <laughs> I went to NYU. They did not require science. These guys will do anything to undercut a point I'm making, Kevin. I just so you know, you're new here. They, they they agree with everything I'm saying, but a cheap shot to a must point. be Up taken. To a, point. a cheap shot must, you can't leave it on the table. But anyways, I think that that's a great part of the story. And that's something that all our listeners and us too, of course, can get from the story of you can move to compassionate action if you're doing your spirituality right. And if you're not doing it, you need to do it. And if you're doing it and there's no compassionate act afterwards, you need to re-examine, well, what am I missing here to get to that point? So I. I really appreciate that part of the story very much, Kevin. Sure. Just one response that I agree that the spirit is where it all began. The science I've now learned shows it explains why I now do these types of compassion actions on a regular basis. And it's that we can actually train our brains to become more compassionate. The brain is a muscle and we can train it. And so the more you do this thing, so I've been doing it for 20 years. And so like I live in New York City, there, if I could spend all day reaching out to homeless people and I would still not make a dent, the hard part is sometimes I have to pick and choose. They're like, what, when, what person am I going to help? We'll see somebody that look, they need, you can tell they need, they don't have the money to get on the subway. So like I just offered, you need to swipe through the car and just do it. And, the, and I get a little zing and I feel better when I do it. And, and I think that that is... That is what we need. That, and I, we go back to this past year where we wanted to make unity our theme, our pay for 9-11, because if you recall in 2002, in a time before hashtags, the words united we stand were pervasive across the world. Yep. Today, not so much. Nope. And yet, I think, and we, we've learned that you can't argue our way with facts out of some of these disagreements we have, but I believe that random acts of kindness to strangers, getting people out of their own silos. I think that's one way that that could help us return to that. 
And of course, any one of us who have been in ministry for, for a long time in prisons and everywhere, all kinds of places, can, can absolutely confirm what you're saying. And we knew this before science did. I mean, it makes logical sense. But if you were to find me, I'll just speak for myself, if you were to find me on the day I was ordained or the day I started ministry before that, I have grown just because of what you're saying of all in the intervening time, all those times of being kinder, stepping up, getting out of my comfort zone, it makes you a bigger person. It does enlarge you. It makes you happier. It, I mean, it's everything Jesus promised, the life that uh, will, the everlasting life that comes welling up from within you. I'm a much happier person than I was years ago, before, and especially before I started really doing this. I mean, there's no question about it. So take Jesus at his word and give it a shot, and it does work, and you can prove it yourself. And I think a big step here, too, that we're talking about, Kevin, it makes it obvious. I think partly some of the passengers were from the Middle East that landed there. That goes along with this. You have to stretch yourselves. They had to overcome resistance and judgment right off the get-go, just based on the visible signs of their dress to be able to take them into their home. So you go through the streets and it's easy for us to turn around and make judgments on people and say, well, well I'll help this person, not that person. And that's part of the stretching we have to do to, to, to really exercise that compassion and get into empathy for people and feel their pain and wonder what it's like to be homeless. You experience it by, you never needed help. And then all of a sudden, a pillow. And this is the world we live in. It, it, it's a blink of an eye. We can, any of us can find ourselves in this situation. But again, it's, it requires the good Lord to, to help us along here. Kevin, as we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share with us or any parting words? I just have great gratitude to all of you and all the Paulist fathers who I'm friends with many of them because they helped shape my life. And so I can say that they were there pushing me. And even maybe when I wasn't as paying as much of attention, I was soaking in something. And so I'm grateful to the Paulists for all they do and wish everyone well in the new expansions in Washington, D.C. Kevin, looking back at your story and, and, and the way you came back to the church, if you ran into somebody and they told you that they're thinking of leaving the church or they had left the church, what would you say to a person like that? I would tell people, I, I know what you're going through. I, I, there are so many people who are suffering pain because of the actions of the church. And there are many, many reasons to be angry and even to leave. But I can attest that by my focus has been on the communities where I worship and finding people who are dedicated to being the doers that you talked about, the people, it's not about shaming and all theology. It's about compassion and action. And when you can find those people, those people in churches, those are the ones that will make your life better because it has had done that for me. Oh, that's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah, yes, it's not it the institution. It's the saints. People. It's the cloud yeah. of witnesses. I agree 100%. That's why I'm here. I'm very right nice. here because well said. of... Kevin, thank you very much. This has been inspirational. Yes. It's been wonderful. You are a gift to us. Thank you very much for being with us today. And a great witness. Thank you. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. 
The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulist Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.